0: Well, good evening folks if you will open with me to Colossians chapter 1 Colossians chapter 1 tonight we' are continuing our study in this rich and delightful passage of scripture it's uh, over the last several weeks these six verses that we have before us have provided me with a treasury of rich and satisfying, encouraging truth. And I pray that tonight God would minister to you as we study this together. As you're turning to Colossians 1, I thought perhaps I could give an a introductory note. Uh, this is our second week in Colossians, um, but I really want to encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. Perhaps, I, I think most of you do this, but you'll find that since we're in Colossians and not Samuel, uh, we are going to be much more interested in single words. Now, we were interested in all the words in Samuel, but there were so many of them, and it was narrative, that you you deal with stories and narratives differently than you do uh, epistles, especially Paul's letters, which means uh, to follow along with uh, with what we're doing, you'll need to be using your Bible more. So I can't reference everything that I'm trying to say but I'm trying to show it to you in the text rather than tell you about about what some people think about it so so that's our goal so tonight we're in Colossians chapter 1 starting in verse 3 and if you will follow along with me as we as we read this together we always thank God the father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God. In truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras. He's our beloved fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, our desire tonight is that you would do supernatural, miraculous work. Lord, I have some expectations and some hopes for tonight. Imagine that others here do as well. Would you please exceed them? We don't even know what we need, but you do. But I pray that for every soul in this room, would you encourage us? Would you strengthen our faith? Would you show us how the gospel produces hope and how that hope produces faith and love so that we would be gospel loving people, eager. To glorify God with our good deeds. Father, for that to happen, we need your spirit to work among us. You've given him to us as a deposit and he's living in us. So as your word is preached, as it hits our hearts, spring to life that we would know you more fully. So Father, for that to happen, I'm asking, let my words fall to the ground. They can blow away and be forgotten. No one needs to hear from man We need to hear from you. So please be kind to us in that regard, we pray. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I haven't had the chance to visit a fair in East Tennessee yet. I understand that fairs are common here, but I haven't had a chance to do it. But for Haley and I, growing up in uh, in the Piedmont there in North Carolina, the fair was a big deal. And I think, I hear it's a big deal here as well, but it's a big deal. It's something we all look for. My dad hated it, but most of us looked forward to it, right? And for my wife's family, they were involved in the fair uh, in, as participants. They, I think all of them, entered and uh, entered crafts and baked goods and knit things and artwork, all sorts of things. In you know they submitted them to the fair and they won. They've got all these all these ribbons. And now for me as a teenager, the appeal of the fair was the rides, right? And, and I got over that pretty quickly. And and the novelties. And but but as I got as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate the finer things about the southern fair experience, if there are finer things, right? I I like seeing livestock. (laughs) You know, the big, like we went, last time we went, was a couple years ago, they had Clydesdale horses. It's awesome. (laughs) I love Clydesdale horses, right? And I like seeing the big vegetables. Anybody like seeing the big vegetables at the fair? Have have y'all been to a fair? (laughs) East Tennessee, we don't need fairs. We got our own farms, right? Yeah. I, I, I like seeing all the you know all the all the stuff that people submit. I don't really like seeing the cakes and the and the baked goods. That always frustrates me. You know, you walk through, and you see a half-eaten pie, and and some other person was like, "This is the best pie," and I'm like, "Well, why can't I tell you if it's the best pie?" Right? So you're looking at all this half-eaten stuff, and it's old, and so I, I like seeing the big vegetables, right? I like seeing the the big the pumpkin that's so big that you know that a tractor had to bring it in i think that's i think that's pretty cool last year i remember looking at the prize winning potatoes seriously they had all different categories right one of them was the biggest potato a few of them had ribbons this, I suppose the biggest potato had, had a ribbon, right? A, a ribbon for being the biggest potato. And it's a concept I find, I find very, you know, very amusing. Because some guy, you know, grew a potato and was like, I'm going to enter this here potato into the fair, right? I'm going to get a blue ribbon that nobody cares about. But I, you have to wonder... So a potato wins a blue ribbon. I'll get I'll get somewhere eventually. A potato wins a blue ribbon. Who gets the credit? Have you ever thought of this? Tell me no, right? I mean, who who gets the credit for the ribbon, right? I'm certain that for that potato, that was the proudest moment of his life, right? Obviously, if you're if you're a potato, there's probably not anything better. He probably felt a sense of accomplishment uh, for his ribbon, cer- celebrating his superior broadness right I bet he was proud of that ribbon Does Mr. Potato deserve the credit or what about you know what about the farmer of course he's bigger so he and he's got fingers so he gets to keep the ribbon and the prize money all that lucrative prize money all the while thinking I I'm smart I dug this here hole and I cut up this here potato and I put it in the ground and voila big potato give me you know give me give me a ribbon I wonder, I mean, what about, I mean, does he get the credit? What about the dirt? Or what about the fertilizer? Or what about the tractor? What about the, the pot- potatoes don't use sun, do they? Yeah. What about the water, right? All, all the other elements that, that go into, do they get a share in, in the ribbon? Who gets the credit for the growth of the potato? Well, here's another important question. Actually, I actually haven't gotten to an important question yet. Here's the first important question, right? how exactly does a potato grow, right? How, I mean, not like, how do you grow one? I know you grow one in theory, but like, how does it grow? I mean, isn't it amazing that a farmer can take the eye of one potato, bury it in the ground, and then come back however many months later? How many? Like three? Two? I don't, I don't, I don't know how long it takes to grow a potato. I didn't win any prizes at the fair for potatoes. You know, they eventually come back a couple months later, and then they dig up all these potatoes, now, you may not be excited about potatoes, and if you're not, it's because you've never had a Japanese purple sweet potato. Anyone ever had a purple Japanese sweet potato? They're, they're only like $7 a pound at Whole Foods or Earth Fair down there, right? I mean, the, the point is, I mean, they're amazing, and who gets the credit? Who gets the credit for the gospel? Who gets credit for Christian growth? Well, obviously, right? We would say, God. I mean, that's easy. But do we give him enough credit? That we would pause long enough to say, I mean, this is amazing. This gospel is amazing. And it's so big. And it's so rich. Don't you think that if we celebrate potatoes and big cows and knitted sweaters and half-eaten pies and fried Oreos, you think that we would celebrate and take time to celebrate the gospel in detail. Not just the gospel macro, but the gospel even in micro. The fair doesn't just celebrate gardening or crafting in general. They've, they That is so interesting. They have so many different types of uh, of exhibits and different things that people grow. I didn't know there were so many kinds of honey, right? So they celebrate in the the granular, celebrate the specifics. See, in order to give God the glory he deserves, I think we should do the same. We should celebrate the gospel in its granular glory. We get to do that in Colossians. The main idea from our text tonight is this. Tonight in our text, we will read of how Paul awards God the blue ribbon of glory by thanking him for how the gospel produces fruit, specifically the fruits of faith and love, how the gospel of hope produces the fruit of faith and love. As we listen to Paul encouraging the church at Colossae, we will hear him not only encouraging these believers. If you've read Paul's letters, you know that in almost every one of his letters, perhaps all of them, uh, most of them, he begins with this prayer of thanksgiving most of the time. Uh, thanking God for what he's doing in their life. And so we hear him as he's, as he's praising and encouraging the Colossians, he is praising God. But as we listen into that prayer, we will also learn some details about how the gospel works, how the gospel works to produce fruit in our lives, particularly how it produces faith and love. We're going to try to do this tonight um, by looking at it from three angles. First, we'll see the fruit of the gospel. Second, the conquest of the gospel. And third, we'll see credit for the gospel. Fruit of the gospel, conquest of the gospel, and credit for the gospel. We have to notice that we are coming into this first section here in Colossians, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, all the way up through 23, Paul's giving one of his opening thanksgivings. And you'll notice that he's telling the church how he prays about them, which is interesting. Interesting how he's praying for these believers at Colossae, which means that if he's praying, he's praying to God. He's thanking God. But he's also sharing the contents of his prayers with the church. Why do you think he would do that? To encourage them. He wants to encourage them. He's praising not them, but he's praising God for their faith, for their hope, and for their love. All of which, he explains, grows out of the gospel. And Paul, as he often does, goes on an inspired tangent, right? Have you ever read Paul and you're like, man, he's getting off on, he chases rabbits, doesn't he, it seems. He gets off on this tangent, but it's a really important tangent because it's more of an excursus that that explains how the gospel produces hope. And how that hope stimulates us to faith and love. Alright? So I'm saying, you're going to have to follow along with me carefully because all these words matter a lot. We're talking about how the hope of the gospel stimulates us to faith and love. So let's try to untangle this, right? The first thing we're looking at is the fruit of the gospel. And this is the bulk of what we'll be seeing tonight. I would like for you to notice there in verse 4 what Paul is thanking God for. You'll notice he says, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, and of the love that you have for all the saints. This is interesting because Paul is, remember we learned last week, he never met the Colossians. He is from a distance, he has heard not only about the problems at Colossae, but also about maturity, about Christian growth, about faith and love and he doesn't stop there he goes on to explain to us thankfully giving us commentary about where these virtues come from now if you read too fast you'll miss all this right we got to read we got to read slow you'll see that faith and love have a source if you look carefully faith and love are the result of hope Look there at verse 5. We've already seen he's, he's thanking God for the faith and the love. And then in verse 5, what's he say? Because of what? The hope. Because of the hope that's laid out for you in heaven. Do you see that connection there? Take, 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 a, take a moment and try to make sure you see this connection. I'll try to explain it in a couple ways. The faith in God... And the love that they have for one another comes out of the hope. You see that? Well, what, what kind of hope? If we keep reading, Paul tells us that it's the hope that's laid up for them in, in heaven. So we learn that whatever, it, whatever this hope is that they have, this faith and love producing hope, whatever it is they have, it is secured, locked away, kept for in safekeeping in heaven. But while it is there, it is active. It stimulates and motivates faith and love. You with me? I'll try to. I'll try to keep explaining it. Right? Because we have to add another component. Paul is not. Paul is not, hey, Paul uses complex ideas because God is complex. Right? His His truth is deep and rich, and so we have to go through complex ideas to, to understand Him. Because Paul gives us another idea. He says that of this hope, right, of this you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Aha, right, gospel. Now we have gospel bringing into the equation. So let me try to string this backwards for you logically and see if you can follow along with me. Look down at the text. I think it's verse five or six. I guess I could look. Uh, Starting in verse, end of verse five and work backwards and see if you can follow the logic of what's going on here. In verse In verse 5, we have the gospel, which they had heard. That gospel produced hope, and out of that hope comes faith and love. Do you see that in the text? They hear the gospel, the gospel produces hope, and that hope produces faith and love. So we could say it like this. Let's go forwards, right? If you want faith and love, you have to have hope. And if you want hope, where do you get hope? The gospel, right? Do you see, you see what we're doing here? Wherever the gospel is received and wherever it is understood, it produces the fruit of hope. And that hope produces faith and love. Okay. All that sounds like theological abstraction. I know. So, uh, hopefully, you're, hopefully you're tracking with me, but we're going we're gonna to try to work through... How this works. We're going to try to apply it, but let's but see how fascinating this is. We have the Apostle Paul, who is an expert on character transformation. Is he not? We just read the conversion of Saul today, if you're following along in the, in the community Bible reading plan, right? Paul is an expert on radical conversion and transformation. And he looks at the Colossians from a distance, and he sees, ah, I know what's happening. I see this faith and this hope and this love. I know how this came about. And he tells them. He actually reverse engineers their Christian maturity. Oh, they have faith and love. Well, that faith and love, he says, comes out of the hope of the gospel. And we should praise God for that. That's the point of these first six verses. But do you realize what that means for us? You realize what that means for us? Do you want more faith? More faith to obey God's word? More faith to endure suffering? More faith to endure temptation? More faith to battle sin? I I do. I need that. Do you want more of this faith that the Bible says without faith, no one can please the Lord? Do you want more of that? What about love? What about love for fellow saints? Do you want some more of that? Would anyone admit quietly in their own hearts that they need more love for difficult people? More love for children? More love for spouses? More love for church members and co-workers and parents? More love for fellow Christians? I need more of that love. Well, that means we need what? Hope tracking with me there's something we don't know what yet but there's something about hope that flips on the maturity switch it causes growth it stimulates us to glorify and obey God to love difficult people and that gives us endurance as we'll find out in coming weeks but what is it what is it about this hope how does this work well, before we try to answer that question, let's look more carefully at what we have here. Here in Paul's prayer, we see the existence of, did you catch it? The three primary Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. And what's unusual about this is they mix the order up and he calls hope as the source of all this, but we'll talk about that. But these three virtues of the Christian, these are the mark of the Christian, If you're a Christian, your life should be, and in fact, I would say it must be, marked by faith, hope, and love. These are the virtues that mark the Christian. They're the qualities that distinguish us as Christians from the world. Faith, hope, and love, that's what makes a mature Christian. We, we need to understand more, right? It's not enough to just say, get some hope, faith, get some hope, get some love, right? That's moralistic teaching, and we don't, we're, we're not interested in that. We want to understand, how does this really work? Well, the best I can put this together, I've tried to boil this down into four steps. So see if you can follow along with me. Step number one, right? So in other words, do you want to grow? Here's what we do. Step number one, you need gospel, The gospel is seen and heard. You can see that there in verse 5. The gospel of this you have heard. He's referring to the gospel. Again, down there in verse 7, we read about how Epaphras came and shared the gospel with this church. This is where it begins. You must begin by hearing the news of the gospel. Remember, for the Colossians, they had no New Testament. I suppose they had the letter Colossians, but they didn't know that was New Testament, right? They didn't have the New Testament. But they did have the oral teaching. The testimony of those who knew Christ or knew the apostles or had the testimony of the apostles themselves. The story of the gospel. And that's how it works. Those who know the gospel share it with others. So that they can come to know the gospel. No one will ever be saved unless they hear the gospel. That's where it begins. Well, what's the gospel? I'm so glad you asked. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters. The gospel is the good news that there is a God in heaven. And he is a good God. He is a good God. And he is all-satisfying and this good all-satisfying God is willing to have an intimate relationship with humans but the problem is with his holiness and our sin they cannot mix God has communicated to us his law a reflection of his beauty and his moral perfection and as humans we have broken that law all of us have each of us has sinned against God And that sin means that we are now objects of of God's wrath. Totally separated. Totally separated from Him. And unless unless something changes, that separation will culminate in separation from God in hell. A place of eternal torment. That is where every single one of us was or is heading. Unless something changes... I thought you said good news, preacher guy. Well, it is good news. The good news is that Jesus, the Son of God, who is God, came to, as Colossians says later, deliver us from the domain of darkness. And not only deliver us, he will actually transfer us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And in that kingdom, there is forgiveness of sins. If you turn from your sin... If you place your faith in Christ, you can be forgiven. And instead of hell and eternal death, heaven and eternal life with God. That's the gospel. And if you're thinking, hey, I already knew that, you need to hear it again. Because that is the source of all the new growth that you and I need. So part one is you you have to hear the gospel, but hearing is not enough. That brings us to step two, you must understand the gospel. It is not enough to hear the gospel. Satan has heard. Many have heard and rejected. You have to know the gospel. There at the end of verse six, you see that word. You you see the word, understand the grace of God in truth. That word, understanding, is one that is pregnant with meaning. It is, it's, it's in the Greek. Its root word is, it's that verb for to know, which we've heard recently. It's a very intimate word, right? Do you know what I'm saying? It's, 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 it's how a man, a man would know a woman. It was an expression of it's an it's an expression of intimate relational knowledge. You could you could call it intensified knowing. It's not just intellectual knowledge, it's experimental or experiential knowledge as well. So think about that. It's one thing to know the gospel. Many of our children know the gospel, but it's hard to tell sometimes if they know and have experienced the gospel. We don't just want them to give us the right answers. We're trying to discern, do they experience it actively? Because if you do, you will experience transformation what it means when he says to understand the gospel. It's the question, is it in you? Is, brothers and sisters, is the gospel in you? Has it gotten into you? Because if it is, it will be producing fruit. It will be producing fruit. You have to understand the gospel. And then step three All right, so you hear the gospel, and then we're talking about growing in maturity. So hearing, many Christians do not grow because they barely understand. They've barely experienced. They they could tell you everything I just said about the gospel, but they have not tasted it much. That brings us to the third step, and that is realizing the security. And here's where we really start to, to find the meat here. When you come to truly understand the gospel, light bulbs start to go go off. Have you had that experience? Have you had that experience that on a bad day you realize, wait a minute, I'm loved by God. And as Charlie just said, remind us, he is a faithful lover. He doesn't change. And felt that comfort? When you come to understand the gospel, light bulbs start to go off, especially as you realize the new security that it provides. In verse 5, Paul is speaking of a secure hope. Do you see that there? It's hope that is laid up for us where? In heaven. The gospel is not simply the news that you don't have to go to hell. It is so often reduced to that. We often treat the gospel like it's the better of two poor options. Like choosing the chicken dish instead of the fish dish on an airplane, right? They're both meh, but you might as well pick the chicken instead of the fish, because where do they get fish on airlines, right? It, it, it's, it's, I mean, no one wants to die, and so you know, but it seems avoidable, so you might as well go to heaven instead of hell, right? It's often how you hear the gospel presented, especially to children. The gospel is not merely the news that you don't have to go to hell. The gospel is the news that you can fully live. Not only will you live forever, but you will experience life and relationships and work and food and joy and knowledge and all of your feelings fully the way that God originally intended. The gospel does not only remove the wrath of God and the promise of wrath, but it includes for us the promise that we will experience life as it should be. Do you feel the hope growing? Do you sense it, you sense it coming? Because now, step four, we get the hope. You see, as you come to understand the truth of the gospel, here's what begins to happen. You begin to realize that your future is so bright, so full, so rich that everything begins to change. Everything. This future is guaranteed for you. As you come to realize the security of your blessing, the blessing that God promises for us, there you find hope. Here's the key. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is by its very nature forward looking. Those who are in Christ always have future expectation of good. Tomorrow you may die. Tomorrow you may find out you have cancer. Tomorrow you may lose your job. Tomorrow you may chip a tooth and have to go to the dentist. In Christ, you always have the promise of future good. Always. Those who are in Christ always have a future expectation of good. We have all sorts of problems on this earth, don't we? We've been hearing about many of them in our prayer chain this week. Many of you are facing them right now. Big and small, everywhere in between. We're all tempted, plagued, by temptations to sin. Relationships are hard, even the good ones. Sickness, fading bodies, death, insurance rates. They keep wrecking our plans. Personalize this for me, right? Just take one of the biggest frustrations in your life right now, right? If you could change one thing about your life to make it significantly better, take that one problem, right, and put that in the blank. There are so many bad things that can happen to us on earth. You know you're going to die, right? We, many of us will bury those we love. There are so many problems. Things in our life will probably get worse. This is hopeful, isn't it, right? Things in our lives will probably get worse, not better. Do you see why the secure hope of the gospel is so comforting? You, if you are in Christ, always have the future expectation of good. Let's put it like this. There is for you an infinite amount of good waiting to be poured out on you for all eternity. When you get to heaven, you will not even begin to comprehend how much blessing God has in store for you. All of that is in the future. God has a reservoir of good, love, joy, and it is stored up to be poured out on you for all eternity. And it's going to take all eternity to experience it. Do you understand that God has good in reserve for you? Now, do you see how that begins to shape your problems? Let's think about it like this, right? I want you to dream up your terrible...